Well, there was a professor and journalist named David Hadou who visited a, a jazz bar in Manhattan's Greenwich Village uh, back in 2001. He slipped in, he was a little bit late, came in in the back, took his seat there, said the room was packed, and he recognized uh, the trumpet player as a man named Winton Marsalis. Now, I don't know much about music, so I asked Luis, I said, do you know who this guy is? He goes, only the most famous jazz musician of all time. I said, okay, thank you. So in this piece, he goes on to talk about how as, as the night went on, Marsalis played a solo ballad. Uh, called I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You, which I'd never heard before. I listened to it this week, and as you do, it's, it's a sad song, okay, uh, written by Bing Crosby about losing the, the love of, of your life. Well, on this night, Hadou said that Marsalis was just was, was hypnotizing the crowd with his playing. Quote, he performed the song with murmurs and sighs, nearly talked the words in the notes of his trumpet. He said that when Marcellus reached the climax of the piece, the, the crowd was silent, and everyone was mesmerized by the way he was playing this song that just seems to, to wrap itself around your soul and makes you feel the loss of love. And then, at the most dramatic point in the song, when everybody's on the edge of their seats, quote, someone's cell phone went off blaring a rapid sing-song melody in electric bleeps. People giggled and picked up their drinks. The moment, the whole performance unraveled. The cell phone offender scooted into the hallway, and chatter began to stir in the room. Hadou wrote on a piece of paper, Magic Ruined. And Marsalis stood frozen at, at the microphone. And then he seized the moment by replaying the silly cell phone melody note for note on his trumpet. And then he repeated it and began improvising variations of the tune. And the audience slowly came back to him. And he toyed with the notes for a few minutes, changing keys once or twice. And then he, in, uh, he resolved the improv, throttled down to the, the ballad tempo, and ended up exactly where he was when the song was interrupted. And Hadou said that the ovation in that place was tremendous. He said the place went, went nuts because he had, he had taken something that looked like it was just utterly destroyed and marvelously weaved it back together. And what was amazing about that night wasn't just his ability to play the piece, but his ability to resurrect from near disaster this, this piece that, that showcased him to be the, the master of jazz that, that he is. Well, as good as Marsalis showed himself to be on that night, this morning we are going to consider how God, who is the orchestrator of eternity, works all things together, both good things and bad things. How he works all things in history together in a masterpiece his people. God shows himself to be that kind of God, the one who is sovereign over everything, which gives us, as his people, great comfort to trust him no matter what happens. So if you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to join me in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 30. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's Bibles in front of you in the pews. We're on page 944. So There's going to be a few verses this morning, but uh, some weighty and wonderful truths here. As you get there, you're going to find that our, our passage is in a chapter filled with promises that God gives to those who trust in Jesus. He reminds us that, that if we are in Christ through faith, meaning we have turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus who died on the cross and who rose from the dead, that if we are in Him, that we are free from condemnation. That means that for those who are in Christ, God is, is no longer angry with us for our sins, but rather we stand forgiven and cleansed by His abundant mercy. We are at peace with God. 
And not only are we free from condemnation, but we are, we are also filled with his Holy Spirit who empowers us to love others and to fight sin in the power that he supplies. And in the midst of all of that, God is shaping and molding Christians into the image of Christ himself, knocking off all of that which is not like Christ and, and supplying grace that we might look more and more like him. And that journey happens in the midst of, of pain and persecution and suffering. But last week when we talked about suffering in particular, we saw the promise in verse 18 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Something greater than suffering is coming. God promises that he is going to work all things together weaving them masterfully together for the good of his children. And on that last day, when we see him in his glorious masterpiece, we will marvel and forever adore him for who he is. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Well, this morning, we are going to look at the promises and the reasons behind the promise that God will resolve the pain of this life with his perfect plan. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. I'll read them for us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For, and this is the reason why that's true, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In these verses, we find a glorious promise from God to his children. So I'm going to summarize what this text says. It's as if God says to those who are in Christ, I am the sovereign orchestrator of your salvation." So you can rest in my eternal love no matter what happens in this life. I'll say that again. This is the summary of these verses. I am the sovereign orchestrator of your salvation. So you can rest in my eternal love no matter what happens in this life. Now to help us unpack this promise, we're going to look at six principles from these three verses. We're going to take a little extra time on the first two. And I think you'll see why as we get into them. But the first one here, number one, is that God sovereignly works all things together for his children. Verse 28. God sovereignly works all things together for his children. This comes from verse 28. I'll read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there are a few verses in the Bible that have been a refuge for God's children, like Romans 8.28. If you have not memorized these verses, or this verse, I want to encourage you to plant this one deep in your heart. This is one that I come back to again and again and again, because it reminds us that that God never loses control. God never says, "Uh uh-oh, and never looks to Gabriel and like, what are we going to do on this one? He he never does that. He is in complete control at all times in all situations. He is never worried. He is never perplexed. God is big and God is sovereign and he assures that no matter what happens in this life, if we are his in Christ, it will work together for our good. And this this promise, Romans 8.28, is rooted in the truth of God's character. That no matter what trouble or trial or sin we face on the way to heaven, If we are in Christ, we know that he never leaves us or loses us. This is a certain revelation from heaven. God will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, we, we need to be clear up front that this promise is not given to all people. Everything does not work together for the good for everyone. It does not. Romans 2.5, which came 
just a, a couple months ago when we studied, it says that for those who don't love God and aren't called according to his purpose, the end is not good. But rather, it says this, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What that means is that Christians believe, and the Bible teaches, that all of history is moving to a moment where everybody will stand before God and they will either be condemned eternally because of their sin or they will be accepted because of their their trust in what Christ did on their behalf. Now, please hear me. This is not a scare tactic to try and get you to, to make some kind of decision. You're going to see that. We don't, don't ask you to make some kind of decision and come up front or any of that. But, but this is a sobering truth that is intended to push us to wrestle with these truths that come from God about who Jesus is. Because hard hearts that resist God's grace should not store up assurance of good things. Because God says they store up assurance of wrath on the last day when God makes all wrongs right. And none of us, none of us are above deserving this judgment. All of us, every one of us in this room have enjoyed good things in this life without having a thankful heart toward God. All of us in this room have have hurt other people rather than loving them. All of us have been through hard things and not trusted God, but but trying to be self-sufficient. All of us have belittled God and made much of sin. That is all of our stories. We've all done it differently, but we've all done it. But none of us want it to end that way. We, we want to hear this, that this promise is our promise. We want to hear that this, that this grace that's spoken of here can be, can be our grace. We want to know that all things will work together for our good, not for our condemnation. So, what must be true of us for us to be able to hope in this grace? Well, our text says that this promise is for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. You see, love for God is, is the mark of a Christian. doesn't mean we always feel this deep, overwhelming love for God, but, but it, it does mean that our heart, that the posture of our heart is one of, of faith. Where, where, where we look to respond to him in, in hope, even through the dark clouds, and even in the midst of our sin, that we, we still, it's, it's stretching toward heaven where we, we delight in him and we adore him and we want to trust him and obey him. That is a picture of biblical love. The word love is in, in the present tense. It's what characterizes your life if you are God's child. It's what, it's what marks you. Now, I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about being a church member. That doesn't mean that you love God. Before I was a Christian, I went to church, and I was a church member. But I tell you, I I did not have love for God in my heart. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon, who was a preacher in London in the 1800s, said about this idea. He said, no ungodly man or woman loves God in the biblical sense. An unconverted man, that's somebody who just just naturally, they may love a God, for instance, the God of nature and the God of the imagination, who we think God might be, but the God revealed through Jesus Christ, no man can love unless grace turns him from his natural hatred towards God. Now, most of us would never say it like that, oh, I hate God. Some, some, Some might. Um, but most people would, would, would not say it that way, but we'd show it with our lives. That we really don't care what God says. That's our natural disposition. We, we want him to be kind of a genie or a caddy who gets us out of the sand trap when we're there, but, but kind of just gets us back on our way and then turns into like some kind of you know, divine travel agent just to make, us, make our lives happy. That's the God of the imagination. It's not the God of the Bible. But, but Jesus... He came to earth to teach us who God really is and to make the way for sinners like you and me to be reconciled to him. That's why, that's why he came. He, he came to save sinners. And Christians have God as their father who is pleased with them because of what Jesus did. 
He is our king. That's why we obey him out of gratitude. Not in order to be accepted like other religions, but because we have been accepted because of what Christ did. We love God. So I would ask you this morning, is that what marks your life? Do you love God? Now, I'm not talking about are you, are you perfect. Christians are not perfect people. We are imperfect people who trust the one who was perfect. So we, we're not talking about earthly perfection. We are talking about heavenly direction. Is that, is that, is that what your life is trending toward? Is that what characterizes you? Is it your hope is in the world to come, not because of just what's there, but because of who is there, that we get to be with God. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what a Christian is like. Now, we have to ask the question, well then, why does a Christian love God? 1 John 4, 19 says this, that we love because he first loved us. We love because, verse 29, we are those who are called according to his purpose. Or that's verse 28. A believer's love for God is rooted in the fact that God first loved them and opened their eyes to believe in Jesus who died for them. And this love from God is what moves us to have love for God and to trust him and to obey him and to seek to walk with him. Now, a minute ago, we, we heard how a, a musician weaved an errant cell phone tune into a masterpiece and how he received praise for it. Well, Romans 8.28 is assurance that our God will do the same kind of thing, but on an eternally greater scale. The God of the Bible is not a weak God who sits in heaven scratching his head, trying to figure out what to do with all the trials and the troubles that come against his people. He is the sovereign orchestrator of all things who uses all things for his perfect purposes. Now, when we say that God is sovereign, it means that he has all authority and all power to do what he chooses at all times in all situations. He is in complete control of all things, both good things and bad things. And we see this in the phrase there in verse 28, works together. It's in the present tense. It paints the picture of, of God actively taking different events in each of our lives and weaving them together into something that ultimately will be beautiful. That's why pianos have white keys and black keys. And someone who gets on the piano knows how to play it, knows how to weave them both together in order to play music that we delight in. God does the same thing with all the events of history. What that means is there's no such thing as luck or chance in God's universe. God ordains and orchestrates and ultimately fixes everything in history. So, so believer in Christ, hear this. Nothing has ever or will ever touch your life that is not under the control and the direction of your loving Heavenly Father. Nothing has ever or will ever touch your life that is not under the complete control and direction of your loving Heavenly Father. He is working all things together for your good, even in this moment. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't allow things to come into our life and even ordain things that come into our life that, are, that can hurt us. But what it does mean is that we have a God who takes all things that happen, even the worst of things, and he transforms them for our good. How many things? What's it say? All things. All things. Even that thing that you're thinking about. All things, no matter what the pain or the persecution or the situation or the suffering or the straying into sin or the dark day of depression or the heavy heart or the ailing body, 
or anything that anybody has ever done to you or said to you. He works all those things and every other thing together to produce a weight of glory that is far beyond our comprehension. Spurgeon again said of this promise that God uses the strangest ingredients to make up this one matchless medicine for our sorrowful souls. He does, doesn't he? Pick strange things sometimes. But hear this, that in Christ, nothing can ultimately work against us because the sovereign God of history is for us. Did you hear that? In Christ, nothing can ultimately work against us because the sovereign God of history is for us. This promise assures us that even the worst tragedies of your life, God promises to transform them into blessings for his children. I'm not going Joel Osteen on you here. Like, that's just, that's what is happening. God promises that good is coming to you. And that is true sometimes in this life and always in the life to come. So in this life, there are times that you will be able to look back after hard things and and maybe sometimes even in the midst of the hard things and you will see how it was only God's hand that moved it could have only been him. I talked to one of our members this week about this. They, they, they talked about, and they're going through a really hard season. And it looks like the hard season probably is going to continue on. And she said, but I've seen his hand. I've seen his hand work in it in ways that, that I just can't explain. And that, that is what assures our soul that we are indeed his. And he, we get little glimpses of that. And he uses that awareness to feed our soul in our pain and in our pleasures to break us away from sin and to bring us closer to him. Have you seen how God has moved in some of the tragedies of your life? Have you seen it? Some of you are in those right now and you're like, I see no way. Well, there is a God who sees the way. And he's known it from eternity past. And because of that, you can rest and you can trust. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Joseph. In Genesis, the last 13 chapters, if you haven't read it recently, I encourage you to do it. Joseph, he's he's the, the, the promised child. His brothers hate him. They sell him into slavery. They act like he's dead. His father's brokenhearted. And... He, Joseph, everything like bad day goes worse and he just winds up, you know, getting rejected by everybody. He's in prison for something he didn't do. It's just bad, bad, bad. And then in a moment, God brings him up, cleanses him, puts him on this, uh, puts on a robe and he comes before Pharaoh and God uses him in order to, to provide food for the world in a time of famine, including his own brothers who had rejected him. And at the end of the story, Joseph's brothers come before him and they, they find out who he is and he knows who they were and they're, they're worried that, oh my gosh, he's going to kill us now. And, and Joseph says, no. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He saw the sovereign hand of God through some hard things that none of us want to go through, but he saw that God moved. And because of that, he extended mercy. And sometimes we see him work things together for the good in this life. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't understand how he'll resolve things. But I tell you what, if a guy with a trumpet can do it, the God of history can do it, much more so. So, take heart, because God sovereignly steers the ship of history. And though there are storms, the verse that hangs as the sail for the Christian in the midst of that is that there is a God who works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And this ship is going home. It's going to make it because God is steering it. So keep on loving, keep on trusting, keep on forgiving, keep on serving, keep on risking all for the gospel because God, he is trustworthy. And he's always been, even back to eternity past, which is our second point, which we'll also take a a bit of time on. Number two, 
is that God eternally foreknows His children. God eternally foreknows His children. Verse 29. For, meaning He's going to explain to you why verse 28 has any kind of weight. The reason you can trust verse 28 and hold on to that promise is because of this. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. This is where we begin what's been called the glorious chain of salvation. And and on this chain, we find pearls of God's grace that stretch from eternity past to eternity future. And the first of these pearls is God's foreknowledge. The words foreknow or foreknowledge uh, shows up seven times in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1.20, the words used to speak of Jesus, who was, quote, foreknown before the foundation of the world. Acts 2, the word is used to describe God's eternal foreknowledge of the betrayal and the crucifixion of Jesus. So the cross was foreknown in eternity past. Romans 11, Paul uses uh, the word to say that God foreknew his people Israel, to whom he gave promises. And then in 1 Peter 1, In Romans 8.29, our verse, it's used to describe God's foreknowledge of believers. Now, these foreknown people are who the Bible calls the elect. The elect. The elect are those whom God chose before the creation of the world to be saved. Now, I remember the first time that I heard this. This preacher's up there, and he's preaching through, through the first Peter text. I got mad. And afterwards, I went straight up to him, and I said, sir, I'm not sure if you've ever read your Bible before, and I just kind of laid into the guy about this. And thankfully, he was, he was gracious, and he said he understood, but he, he encouraged me to, to start reading and to start watching for this idea. And he gave me some places to start reading. And, and as I did, I was pretty overwhelmed because I just never read, read the Bible looking for it before. But in one sense, it's, it's really everywhere. This idea about God's electing love. I mean, we even see it next week. Look at verse uh, 33. Whom shall bring a charge against God's elect? Chapter 9. We're going to get plenty of it there. But um, we'll see that in a little while. But let, let, me, let me read one example for you. This comes from Acts 13, 48. Paul and Barnabas have preached the, uh, the message about Jesus to these Gentiles in Antioch, which is a city. And it says this, quote, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God... And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And that kind of language is just found all over the Bible. So, so the question isn't if the Bible teaches election. Because it, it, just, it just does, okay? The question, however, is why is someone of the elect? And that's where this word foreknowledge comes in. And this is where kind of the discussion, in one sense, really begins. And I'm sure we'll have questions about this on Wednesday, so write them down as we work through. But there's basically two interpretations of of this word foreknowledge and the way that we think about it in regards to, to God electing people to salvation. The first is this, that God knows what we will do. That God knows what we will do. Meaning that because God is all-knowing, he looked down through history and he saw all those who would believe in him and then in light of their choice of him, he chose and predestined them to be his elect. Meaning God knew what we would do and in light of that, he elected us. So kind of a, not, not the best illustration, but an illustration would be like if, you, if I took a, a dart and I walked over there and I threw it into the wall and I saw where it landed and then I drew a circle around it as a bullseye. That because I saw where it landed, then I went ahead and marked the bullseye. Picture of what it might look like. Well, while it's true that God does know what we will do, I don't believe this is what foreknowledge means. I'll give you just two, two brief answers as to why. The first is that spiritually dead people can't choose God. So so in this view, God looks down into history and sees who freely chooses him. But the problem is that the Bible teaches that our will is naturally enslaved to sin and we are spiritually dead, apart from God's intervention in our lives. 
Now, if you've been around for the rest of Romans, you've, you've heard that before. Chapter 3, like, I encourage you to just read that. It just says straight up, like, nobody seeks God, not even one. Chapter 5 talks about how we're born in Adam, like we're born in sin, dead. Now, we certainly have a will, and we certainly make choices. Hear that. But because we are in sin, we always choose to turn away from God and follow our own ways. Now, it doesn't mean you're, you go off and be as bad as you can be, but it does mean that we rebel. That's, that's what marks our lives, rather than love for Him. So, so the question is, if you're a Christian... Why are you a Christian? Because I believed. Amen. True. Then the question is, why did you believe? So for instance, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a Christian because I'm smarter than Einstein was or more morally sensitive than Gandhi was. Both of those people heard the gospel and rejected it. The only reason that I believed is because of the grace of God who, who opened my heart to believe. Now, another reason that I don't think that, that it, this idea of foreknowledge means that God knows what we will do isn't just because spiritually dead people don't choose God, but the Scripture never speaks of our faith as the reason that God chooses us. The Scriptures never speak of our faith as the reason that God chooses us. Uh, Ephesians 1. He says, 1, 5, and 6 says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. God doesn't say He predestined us for adoption according to our faith and choice of Him. Our faith and choice, that's there if we believed in Christ. It must be. But it happens according to the course uh, or the purpose of his will. So God doesn't choose us because we first choose him. Hear this Jesus says this in John 15:16. He says to his disciples, "You did not choose me, but I chose you that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would remain." Okay, so so if it's not that God knows what we will do, hang with me even if if you hold that first view, hang with me and hear, hear the other. The other view is that God knows what he will do. So not that God knows what we will do, which he does know that, but not in the sense of that's why he elects us, but rather God knows what he will do. This means that in eternity past, God chose, according to his own will, people to whom he would extend mercy in Christ. This means that God knew what he would do, and his decision ultimately has nothing to do with anybody else's decision. If you want a a picture of this, though again faulty, Let's say an artist wants to paint an original. And they go up to a a bare canvas. Before they begin painting, they they foreknow, they see, they know what they're going to put on there. Not because of what somebody else has done. This is going to be an original. This is going to be their masterpiece. They foreknow it in their mind. It's that kind of picture. It's similar to what I believe the Bible teaches about divine foreknowledge. So God does not simply have divine foresight where he knew what we would do, but rather he has foreknowledge of what he would do and whom he would sovereignly choose to save. And in this view of salvation, it is by grace alone. Because I don't know what y'all were doing in eternity past, but I wasn't doing anything. But when God chooses in light of that, it is simply a gift of love from God. And what's what's amazing about this is that God doesn't simply foreknow a decision people might make, but rather he knows the saints themselves with a love that is from eternity past. The word know there, it's an intimate knowledge. It's, It's covenant affection in which God loves someone in a saving way long before time began. In Jeremiah 31, 3, the Lord spoke to his people and said this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I continued my faithfulness to you. The faithfulness of God to his people glitters through this this whole glorious chain and begins with a love that stretches into eternity past. God foreknew those who he loved, and the reason they love him is because he first loved them and chose to bestow his love on them. Simply, it's what pleased him 
that's number two, that God eternally foreknows his children. I do encourage you to stick with me, even if you disagree on any of that. Number three, that God lovingly predestines his children to be like Jesus. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, I think you're going to see that to, to predestine is not really where the controversy is. It's in the foreknowledge idea. But because the word predestined simply means to decide beforehand. For instance, the crucifixion of Jesus was not something that just happened. So God didn't look down while Jesus was on the earth and be like, uh-oh, this is going bad. How are we going to fix this thing? But rather, the cross itself was foreknown by God in eternity past. Listen to this from Acts 2. This is Peter. He says to Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. This Jesus delivered up according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. God pre-planned the cross. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an audible. It wasn't Omaha, okay? Some of y'all know what that means. Don't worry about it. The Bible teaches that God does the same thing with people. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Those whom God knew before the world began as the ones he would mark out, he then set in motion the way he was going to save them in his perfect plan and his perfect timing. When God predestines someone, he predetermines their destiny. He predetermines that they will be in heaven with him. Now, because I'm going to forget to say this, I want to pause right here. You've got to remember that we're talking about things that God knows in eternity. Just, just keep that in mind. These, we don't know who God's foreknown. We don't know those whom he's predestined. We don't know the elect, for sure. The scriptures say the Lord knows those who are his. So just keep that in mind. Come back. So when, when God, he's, he's, he destines that we will be in heaven with him. And, and the reason that this is so important is because when we look at Romans 8, 28, the reason that God works all things together for your good is that you were chosen and loved before you existed. And God will finish what he starts, which is conforming you to the image of Christ. And that is the goal of grace. That's the goal of God's saving grace in our lives is to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. Now let that sink in for just a moment. If you are a Christian, the purpose God has from you, that has for you from eternity past is for you to be shaped and molded and transformed and conformed into the image of the son of God. And what's amazing about that is that, that anything It helps us to see that anything that makes us more like Jesus is good. Even the hard things. Remember a couple months ago I I preached Romans chapter 5 and in there I used the illustration of a silversmith and talked about how the way that a silversmith uh, prepares metal is he takes the raw metal and then he heats it up with with a fire. And as he does that, it, it burns off all of the dross all the impurities, all that which is not silver. And the way that a silversmith knows when the silver is done is he looks down and he can see his reflection clearly in the metal. And that is exactly what God has predetermined will happen for those who are his, is that he will use all kinds of situations and circumstances, all things. He will work together for the good, shaping and molding and transforming us into the image of his son, which will end in glorification, which we'll conclude with here in just a few moments. But that's the goal of grace. God gives these truths about predestination to bring us comfort and assurance of God's love for us. When we consider his gracious, undeserved love, what it should do is not make us buck against it, but rather, it should create in us a humility and a thankfulness and a delight in God. So a 
an arrogant Christian should be an oxymoron. There's no place for that. Which brings us to number four. That God convincingly calls his children to believe in Jesus. God convincingly calls his children to believe in Jesus. Verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Okay, so, so here, I'll read again. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So here we move from seeing the heart of God in eternity past to now seeing the hand of God in the lives of people in history. This is, this is what, if you've ever seen someone come to know Christ, or if, if you are born again, this is, this, is, this is what went down behind the scenes. All right? This calling is the way that God draws people to himself and gives them new life. This calling is the sovereign act of God's spirit who chases down a runaway rebel and arrests their hearts and opens their hearts and gives them a new heart to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that has to happen in order for you to become a Christian. That's, that's what happens, which I'm just going to go, I'll forget. So some people say, people who believe in this stuff, they don't evangelize. They're not going to tell other people about Jesus because they're just going to say, ah, God's got it under control. He knows it's going to be who he is. We don't even need to worry about evangelism. That's garbage. God ordains the ends and the means. And the only reason that I ever have hope, even the only reason I have hope right now as I'm proclaiming this word is because I believe that God will not let his word return void because he has his people. So my hope in, in helping somebody understand what it means to be a Christian and to follow after Jesus is not in me having the perfect story and the perfect track and be able to say it just when the sun's right or if they're in a good mood and like all that kind of stuff. Like that's not how, you, how somebody becomes a Christian. We believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And my only hope when I proclaim the gospel is that God will make it work in whatever way he sees fit and he's the one who raises people from the dead. Not, not me. But, that, but God's got to do that. Listen to this from John 6, 44. This is Jesus speaking. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here Jesus says that the only way anyone can come to him is if God the Father draws that person to him. That drawing or that leading or that calling is what Paul is talking about here. It is the supernatural summoning of God's children to repent and to believe in Jesus who died for them and who rose from the dead for them. Now, this is where you might ask, but, but I thought I believed in Jesus. You did believe in Jesus if you're Christian. Like, that, that happened. You trusted in Christ. But if you're a Christian, you believed in Jesus because something else happened. Listen to this from Acts 16, 14, where Luke talks about what happened to a woman named Lydia when Paul proclaimed the gospel of the good news of how Jesus dies for sinners. Listen to this. One who heard us, this is Luke speaking, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, meaning she worshiped the God of Israel. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So that's my prayer. That's what's happening right now. That there's some of you who came in here and you, you haven't trusted in Christ. You've heard things maybe. You're just, why, why ever you're here. My hope is that as this good news goes out, that Jesus came and lived a life that you could never live and died the death that you deserve and rose from the dead and now promises that anybody who will turn from their sin and trust in him will be forgiven and made right with him. My hope is that God will do that to your heart. And I pray that's happening right now for some of you. That you hear this and you're like, I don't think I believed that before, but I, that might be true. Do not resist him. He is calling you. It is a sweet call. It began long ago. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. It's a call of love. It's a call of mercy. It's a call of grace. 
How gracious of God to do that. How many of you remember before you were a Christian, people talking to you about Jesus and you just dismissing it and thinking, listen, I, it's kind of wacky. You know, I'm not, I'm not into that. Listen, I, I had the gospel, the good news about Jesus shared with me at least 17 times over the first 21 years of my life before God opened my heart to respond to what was spoken. This calling from God is what we call an effectual calling. That means that it's not simply an invitation that we get to choose what we want to do with. Rather, this is a sovereign summons from the Savior Himself that grabs, that grabs a heart and awakens it and gives it life. Now, can we resist His calling? I think we can certainly try, but when God calls, we will eventually come. So middle of my junior year, went to Virginia Tech, I was into all kinds of drugs, all that kind of stuff. I began reading through the Bible a little bit, was having some curious things. Not, don't think that I was, was born again. And a friend of mine named Adam called me. He's like, bro, spring break, Panama City. And I'm like, I'm not sure if I should go. And he's like, come on, man, great time. I was like, man, I've kind of been reading the Bible a little bit. He's like, bro, you definitely need a break. Let's go party. I was like, ah, okay. So we got in the car, and we're driving down there. And as we're driving down there, I'm talking to him. I'm like, listen, bro, I feel like God's following me around. And he says, he's like, man, he's like, listen, you need, you need a break. This is going to be a good week for you. So as we're driving into Panama City Beach, Florida, this plane flies over with this big banner behind it that says, Jesus saves. And I was like, dude, God is following me around. He's like, whatever. We get to the hotel, go in, do our thing. We get our, get our case of uh, uh, refreshments, and we go down to the beach. And we're sitting, on the, we're sitting there, and we're chilling, doing what, what cool people do, you know. And we're hanging out, and we're kind of talking. And then all of a sudden, I look down the beach, and there's this whole herd of Campus Crusade for Christ people who are like these people who went to the beach, not to party, but to tell people about Jesus. And they're all coming down there, handing out Bibles and whatnot. And I look at him, I'm like, dude, God is following me around. And he's like, no, but we got to get out of here. So we left. That night, we went out to the club, and we were, we were clubbing and doing whatever you do at the club. Trying, you know, We come out, and as, I am not lying. We stepped out, and these three vans all pull up with, like, turn or burn, God loves you, Jesus saves, John 3.16, all this kind of stuff. I was like, dude, God is following me around. He's like, forget about it. So we go back to the hotel room, and, um, uh, yeah, we, we, we smoked some marijuana, which we should not have done. And then we went down, to, went down to a Waffle House. And we're sitting at Waffle House, and there's nobody in Waffle House. And I'm sitting there, and I'm talking to him, and I'm like, I, I'm starting to feel guilty for doing this, which I had never felt before. I'm like, dude, God is following me around. He's like, bro, I think you just need to quit it with the drugs. I think it's the drugs. I think you've been doing too many drugs too long. You need to put this stuff away. And then I, all of a sudden, the door flies open to Waffle House, and these, like, 60 Campus Crusade for Christers all come in with their Bibles talking about, we love Jesus, and they're all sitting around us, and this guy walks over to me, and he goes, are you from Virginia Tech? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, uh, my name's Shelby. I work with Campus Crusade for Christ. We should talk sometime. I'm like, okay. And he walked away, and my buddy Adam looked at me and goes, dude, God is following you around. <laughs> it was just game on. That's God's calling. And that's how it worked in my life, and it works different in everybody else's life, which is amazing. But he, he works things together to get his children and to bring them to himself. Number five. God graciously justifies his children through Jesus' righteousness. God graciously justifies his children through Jesus' righteousness. Verse 30. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he called, he also justified. Now, if you've been with us through this series, you've heard much about justification. Justification is one of the, the sweetest words that could ever fall on a sinner's ears. Those God knew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. And upon this belief, this transaction happens where everything eternally changes. And this right here, justification, this is why we love God. Because he awakens us to the fact that Jesus came and that he was condemned on the cross for our sins. That he took the wrath that we had been storing up. That there he suffered and took the shame and the death that we deserved. And then he went into the grave and three days later, he rose from the dead. And after rising from the dead, he proclaimed good news 
that for any who would turn from their sin and trust in him, that what he would do is he would give the great exchange, which is he would take all of their guilt and all of their condemnation and all of their shame and credit to his account, and that he would take all of his righteousness and the glory that he's had for all of eternity and credit to their account, so that now God deals with us not as we are and not as we deserve, but as Christ is and as Christ deserved. We are now loved what we heard in that John 17 prayer that Jesus prayed. God, show him the love that we had before the foundation of the world. That in Christ to be justified means that we are right with God, not because of what he, we have done, but what he has done. And now we are fully loved, thoroughly accepted, completely his. We are his forever. That's why we sing about this. That is the work of God called justification. And this is a good place, I think, for us to notice that God never mentions our faith in this section. In this chain, this glorious chain of salvation, he never talks about our faith. Now, in chapters 3 through 5, he made it really clear that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Faith is a big deal. But it isn't mentioned here. I'm not sure why, but I'm, I'm betting that he doesn't want us to miss the fact that our faith doesn't justify us. God justifies us. Our faith doesn't qualify us for justification. As Ray Ortland says, faith is merely the empty hand receiving the gift of justification. That's what this whole, this whole section is about. It's a glorious chain of gospel pearls that are being dropped into our hand. We're eternally foreknown, lovingly predestined, convincingly called, and graciously justified. And all that hinders us from heaven is taken away, and nothing stands between us and our certain heavenly home, which is number six. That God certainly glorifies his children in the end. God certainly glorifies his children in the end. Look how it ends. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This work of glorifying us is the final pearl of the glorious chain of salvation. It's, it's the promise that God will finish the work that he began in eternity past. He will now take us to be with him in eternity future. Now what does it mean that we will be glorified? Well in verse 29 it says that we saw that he predestined his people to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the simplest answer is that for us to be glorified means that we will be conformed fully into the image of Jesus and we will forever stand with him as brothers and sisters. So as Jesus was raised from the grave, so we will be raised from the grave. As Jesus' body was made glorious, so our bodies will be remade and be able to, be in, to endure the, God, the glory of God for all of eternity. As Jesus will never die again, so we will never die again. As Jesus is free from sin, so we will be free from sin. As Jesus lives forevermore, so shall we live forevermore with him. Now some have wondered why God didn't include the doctrine of sanctification on this list. In case you're not familiar, sanctification is the process that begins after justification in which we are slowly but surely made more holy or more like Jesus. God changes what we love and what we hate and how we live. Well, I think the reason is because sanctification is here rolled up into the idea of glorification. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, We all, he's speaking of believers here, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So our glorification has begun in this life after after, um, justification. As the Spirit shapes us and molds us, we are being transformed more and more by one degree of glory to another. And one day soon, when Jesus returns, He will finish that work 
fully and finally. But can you imagine that day? To never suffer again. To never doubt again. To never sin again. To never want to sin again. No more shame, no more guilt, no more condemnation, no more worry, no more anxiety, no more. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And how certain is that going to happen? Do you see how he speaks about our future? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What tense is that? It's done. God is, it is so certain that he speaks of it as if it's already happened. Those whom he justified, he glorified. God is the ultimate historian because he writes history before it begins. Can God's people have this confidence? Can we, can we mess up between now and then? Hear these words of Jesus. Chapter 6 of John, he says, All that the Father gives me, foreknown, will come to me, calling. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out justification. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Every one given to Jesus from the Father will be called and will be kept, and he will lose none. And our passage this morning reflects that. Because, look at this, who does it depend on? God foreknows. He predestines. He calls. He justifies. He glorifies. Salvation is from the Lord from beginning to end. And you notice who he was faithful to? Every one of his children. Those whom he foreknew. Those he predestined. Every single one. All the way up to glorification. None are lost because God is forever faithful to his promises. And that glorious chain of salvation... That is why Romans 8.28 means anything. The reason that we can trust that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him is because He started it a long time ago and He's got plans for a long time from now. And we are His forever. Verse 31. If God is for us, who could be against us? Next week we'll talk about that and what it means to be kept in that securing love for all of eternity. As we wrap up our time, I want to acknowledge that some of the things I've talked about today can be difficult for some of us to swallow. And I, I understand that. Um, and that's why Wednesday, we want to give the opportunity for you to, to ask questions. So at this church, we believe that you should ask questions. You will never be told, ah, you can't ask that here. You can ask anything. Come on Wednesday night and ask, okay? Seven o'clock back here. If you're not able to make that, um, no promises on recording. I'll do my best. But if you want to meet with one of the pastors or another uh, brother or sister in the church, we'll help you think through some of these things. None of us have all the answers. But in conclusion, three very brief things to think about this that have helped me in these doctrines. Number one, eternal truths are mysterious, and that's okay. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the, etern- but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. How our will and God's will fits together is a bit of a mystery, and that is okay. But the things that we know we're to do are really clear, and we all trust that. Number two, that we can trust God even if we don't fully understand him and his ways. One of the things that has helped me as I've worked through this is for me to admit that I'm not more loving than God, I'm not more merciful than God, and I'm not wiser than God. And if those things are true, that helps me to come before the Scriptures and say, God, help me to understand. And then thirdly, that we all are growing in maturity. None of us have all the answers, and none of us are done yet. So let's pray that as we, as we work together, pray for one another, that we would be a church that understands deep truths, that we would have great hopes and proclaim the gospel to many. Father, we thank you for this weighty and wonderful word. We thank you that you are the glorious God who works together a glorious salvation for your people. Father, we praise you. We praise you that from eternity past to eternity future, you are God. Thank you.
God, we pray that you would meet us wherever we are this morning and you would give us the mercy that we so greatly need. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.